All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, how you are the God who blesses humanity with precipitation, rain in the summer, snow, lots of it in the winter. And you've blessed our city, Lord, with workers and people behind the snow plows and out there in the wee hours of the morning so that people like us could come to church and worship you. You've been good to us. You've been good to our city and to our state and to our nation. So we acknowledge that this morning and Lord, as we, um, as we get into the word this morning, we pray that you would bring light to us and especially to us as a church. And Lord, I believe that you have a word for us that we're in, a, we're in a moment here. And so we wanna be faithful to what you've called us to as a church. So Lord, just speak through the scripture this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are uh, working our way through a 2,500-year-old book called Nehemiah. And you know, if you're sort of new uh, to the Bible and Christianity and all that kind of stuff, you go, well, what does a 2,500-year-old book have to do with us or with me? Well, here was the situation. Politically, at that time, God's people lived in a country with a godless government who despised them. And the economy was a mess. The supply chain was, uh, there was lots of issues. It costs a lot of money to, to fuel up your camel um, in that day. And because there was no border, because there was no wall, people could just come in and do whatever they wanted. And they would smash and grab. Smash and grab stopped only because everything had been smashed and grabbed at that point. And so businesses left the city, they never came back. Does that sound familiar at all? How many of you know that in a fallen world, which is how the Bible portrays our world, that walls and borders and fences and gates are necessary. They are necessary. In fact, right after, think about this, right after our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, God expelled them from Eden. And then he stationed uh, cherubim, these angelic guards with flaming swords as a wall so that they couldn't go back in and eat of the tree of, the, uh, the tree of life in their fallen state. Walls are necessary. It's not a political statement, it's a biblical statement. It wasn't man's idea to divide up humanity into different languages and nations and and uh, you know cultures and all of that. That was God's idea to divide humanity. And so 
that's not a political statement, that's a biblical statement. And that's what the confusing of the languages was about at the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11. Maybe some of you recall this important story. In Genesis 11, God saw that the whole world, the, all of humanity at that point, we don't know how many people there were, uh, could be as few as 40 or 50,000, we don't know for sure. But they all spoke the same language. Everybody spoke the exact same language, used the same words, and because of it, a man called Nimrod was able to unite all the people against God. So Nimrod was a mighty hunter, meaning a mighty hunter of men, of people. And he was able to capture people's minds and manipulate them and influence them. If, if, if people all speak the same language, they are much easier to control, you see, and manipulate. People are quite susceptible to groupthink. That's a thing. <laughs> and so... The narrative was controlled by a few powerful people, and if anyone didn't go along with the narrative in that day, they would be dealt with severely. So Nimrod convinced them that they could build their own utopia, that they could build their own heaven on earth apart from God. They don't need God. And so what did God do? He confused their languages. All of a sudden, there were groups of people who were talking and they could only understand small numbers of other people and they had to find each other. And so they found each other and they would have to go off together now as a people uh, with a unique language and they would begin to build their culture and their nation and so on. God eventually would call out one man from one of those nations. Abram would be called out to form yet another nation. And through that nation, Israel, the Messiah would come. And the Messiah did come, didn't he? And he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he ascended back into heaven. But before he did, he said to his disciples, I want you to go into all the nations, into all the people groups that speak all the different languages and all the cultures, and I want you to make disciples of all of them. And so, so this dividing of humanity would be advantageous to the gospel because there'd be the ability to bring in the truth and the light of the gospel without everyone being sort of manipulated and controlled under one narrative. So this is what the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years, is going into all the world and making disciples. And the Bible predicts, however, that preceding the second coming of the Messiah, that humanity will have returned to a Tower of Babel kind of a situation where the language barriers will have been overcome. The language barriers that God instituted way back at the Tower of Babel. It predicts that there will be a few powerful people that will control the narrative and humanity will be, de be deceived into thinking that they can break free from God once and for all and create their own utopia. The Bible predicts all that. A last day's Nimrod will come on the scene. 
known typically, we call him the Antichrist. And he will rise up and he will galvanize this movement into what amounts to the final rebellion before Jesus returns and takes over his planet. Did you know, I was reading this week, according to the index of objects launched into outer space, which is maintained by the United Nations for Outer Space Affairs, as we speak, there are 11,330 satellites flying above us. 11,300, that's up 37% from just last year. So we, we are populating the space above us in a huge way with satellites. These satellites, among other things, they're, they're virtually giving all of humanity access to the internet. They're broadcasting audio and video to the planet. They're guiding us in our vehicles in real time. Do you realize that your, your navigation on your car is sending up a signal to a satellite and it's coming and it's pinging back and forth and it's, showing every, and it's accurate to within seven meters and that's how the thing follows you wherever you go. We were in California last week driving through Los Angeles and it's like, turn around and I see it, turn around. How does it do that? There's a satellite. So distance has been eradicated. The language barrier for all intents and purposes has been overcome. So we see people now acting in concert all over the planet. It's a strange phenomenon. It really is. We see people acting in concert to shut down countries in fear of a disease. We see people acting in concert to show their hatred for Israel or to show their panic and alarm over the supposed coming climate disaster and on and on and on. These ideas, they move like a contagion, like a disease around the world. And because the language barriers and the boundaries have been overcome, humanity is able to be manipulated like never before. And a very few wealthy and powerful people are controlling the narrative and they're pulling the strings of power. That's not a conspiracy theory. I used to be a conspiracy theorist until they all came true. <laughs> so here we are. We're watching the final rebellion, I believe, uh, shape up, which means for us, Jesus is coming soon. That's the good news. Yes. So, and I, I preface all this for this reason. We don't take our cues from culture. We're, we don't buy into group think. We think for ourselves. We think biblically. And so we need to have a strong backbone, a sharp mind, and think biblically about the issues that face us in our world, in our nation, in our state, in our city. And so... Walls and gates and borders are necessary in a fallen world. They enable a family, a city, a nation to thrive. So, now that the wall has been built uh, around Jerusalem, it's time to prepare for growth. It's time to get ready for people to come. And this is our first observation this morning. We expect blessing from God. We do. We because he is good. So number one, we prepare for growth. We prepare for the blessing. Verse one. Now when the wall had been built, 
And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the, uh, of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they're still guarding, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, some in front of their own houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled in, by genealogy. So, the walls were built, the gates were hung, the city was now secure. Now it's time to organize and get people in places of leadership and oversight. And so it was time to get processes and procedures and policies dialed in now to help govern God's people uh, effectively. And two primary reasons. Number one, so that the people currently living there could prosper. But secondly, so that they could handle the new people that would be coming. There's going to be growth. So they were preparing for the growth. They were preparing for blessing. When the place was a dump before Nehemiah got there, <clears throat> they didn't really need to worry about growth, did they? Because it was a dump. Dumps don't attract people. Dumps attract rats and vermin, but not people. For seven years in a row now, Idaho has been in the top five or so states uh, percentage-wise in, in growth. We are one of the top states in the country for growth. People are fleeing states that are not run very well, and they're coming here. Pam and I were in California last week, as I mentioned, and we had dinner with my sister and her fiance. And her fiance happens to be a California Superior Court judge. And he's uh, serving his final year before his retirement. And uh, he lamented, we talked, you know, we're just at this restaurant in Laguna Beach and uh, having dinner. He's lamenting the condition of California. He's a conservative Christian guy on the Superior Court in California. And he was saying, you know, our policies are driving people away uh, on one end of the system, but they're bringing people in on the other. He said, everyone who enters California from Mexico, which is quite easy to do, they're given a bunch of cash and a cell phone. They get Medi-Cal, which is California's healthcare system. They're brought into, you know, healthcare. And then they're given free legal advice. They get a lawyer. And that lawyer, which is paid for by the, the taxpayers, can now argue for their ability to get, you know, their, uh, their right to stay. And they can sue the state of California with the free lawyer that they got from the state of California. And it's, and it's driving uh, our friend Richard, my sister's fiance, crazy. He's going, this is nuts. And so people are coming across the border and then people are fleeing from the state. Because they're all paying for crazy kind of policy. 
in California, stealing, you can steal $950 or less and it's only a misdemeanor. And everybody knows nothing's gonna happen to you if you steal less than that. There, there won't be any consequences. He can't believe it, but he knows why people are fleeing the state. I know a sure way how to get people to stop coming to Idaho. Mark it down. All we have to do is adopt California's policies and they will stop coming here. But people are coming. And so our city leaders, they have to issue building permits and make sure to have enough law enforcement in our city and they have to make sure we can handle the water and the sewage and the traffic and, and, and all of that for the people of our city who live here now and who will come later, that they are served well, that they can thrive and flourish in our city. And so our state is growing, our city is going. You wouldn't know it this morning, but our church is growing. And uh, we're glad about that if you're a Christian here this morning. That's our posture. We're glad because we live on mission for King Jesus. That's what we do. And so we want to we wanna introduce as many people as we can to Jesus uh, if they don't know him. And that, that's our mission. And in the same way that a city needs to prepare for growth, so too a church needs to prepare for growth. We should expect growth. We should expect God to bless because that's what God does. The Holy Spirit is currently at work all over the world and right here in the Magic Valley convicting people of their sin and of their need for God's righteousness. Aslan is on the move. And so, so we need to prepare. We need to expect that. There's an amazing story found in 2 Kings 3 where you have three kings who form an alliance to fight against the Moabites. And uh, Jehoram, who's a wicked king, he's the son of Ahab, remember Ahab and Jezebel, he's their son, and uh, he goes to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who's a good king and uh, a righteous king, and asks him, Jehoram asks Jehoshaphat, will you join me in fighting against the Moabites? It was a common enemy for them both, so uh, Jehoshaphat said, yes, I will. And then Jehoram asked the more experienced Jehoshaphat, which way should we go? What, what direction, uh, from what direction should we attack? And Jeho Jehoshaphat said, let's go down to Edom and we'll attack Moab from the south. We'll kind of come around and then come up from the south. And Edom was a super dry desert kind of area. I mean, it's real you know, dry and arid over there anyway, but Edom uh, especially so. So they begin their journey and the king of Edom joins them. So you've got three kings and three armies and they're marching now for seven days. They ran out of water and where they currently are situated, there is no water. They're out of water. There is no water locally, naturally, anywhere. They're in a tough spot. So... Jehoram said, the wicked king says, alas, the Lord has given us into the hand of Moab. And that's always the way, that's always what unbelief says. That's always what a guilty conscience will say, by the way. God is judging me. This must be God judging. This bad thing is happening. This tough spot that I'm in, that God is judging me. There are a lot of people today who have a guilty conscience. 
I saw this this past week about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories. He wanted to test his theory out, and so he play, played a joke on, on 12 friends of his. He sent them all a message that said, very simply, telegram, flee at once, all is discovered. And they all left the country, all 12 of them. Because they were plagued. There was something in their, you know, in their conscience that was still bothering them. The wicked flee, the Bible says, when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. So this is the benefit of confession, by the way, is that, listen, we've all got things we could be plagued by in our, in our past and maybe in our very recent past. And so the way to deal with that is to bring it into the light and let God use that bar of soap called 1 John 1, 9 and, and scrub it out. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can go out with a clean conscience and not be looking over our shoulder like, ooh. So, Jehoram thought, I'm found out. God is judging us. But Jehoshaphat said, you know what? We need a word from the Lord. We're in a tough spot. We need a word from God. That's what we need. He's not against us. God is for us. But we need to hear from him. So let's talk to Elisha, the prophet. And so they go to Elisha. And Elisha says to Jehoram, the wicked king, what are you doing here? Why don't you go talk to your mom and dad and ask their prophets, you know, Ahab, Jezebel, the prophets of Baal. Woo! So, Jehoshaphat, or rather, Elisha, the prophet, says, you know what, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat, I would tell you to take a hike. And then Elisha said, the prophet says, bring me a musician. 2 Kings 3.15, bring me a musician. What was Elisha doing? He was saying, I need to worship the Lord. And so, the Bible says, 2 Kings 3.15, when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Elisha asked for a worship leader. The worship leader came and sang a song of worship. Elisha enters in. Elisha was all of a sudden awakened to the presence of God, and he knew that the hand of God was upon him. He was ready to minister God's word. Listen, when, when you want to become more sensitized to the presence of God in your life and, and more sensitized to the Lord's voice in your life, the Lord's leading in your life, worship him. Worship him. It is so powerful. It awakens you to the greatness of God. Lift your voice to the Lord. That's what Elisha did. And all of a sudden, he sensed the hand of God upon him. And then he says, Elisha does, 2 Kings 3.16, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Dig a bunch of ditches in this dry, crusty desert. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet, 
That valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle, your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. So there's no rain in the forecast. There's a, it's a dry, arid, no wind, not a cloud in the sky. They're dying of thirst in a crusty desert. And God says through Elisha, have your men start digging ditches in preparation to hold the water when it comes. That had to be a little bit of a tough sell for those army guys who are almost dead already, right? Like, you want us to dig ditches in this crusty desert? <clears throat> but they did, and God kept his promise because God always keeps his promise. And it's not hard for him to do that. It's a simple thing. It's a sim simple thing for God to do miraculous things. He doesn't have to uh, turn it up or work hard. So God wants people to expect blessing and prepare for blessing. Even when times are dry and times are tough, we must expect and prepare. That's what we do. Anything less than that, we are living in and walking in unbelief. We're not walking in faith anymore. Faith is believing that God is good and he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, quote, but most of the people say, well, you know, of course, if God sends a blessing, we must then enlarge. Yes, that's the way of unbelief and the road to the curse. But the way of faith and the road to the blessing is this. God has promised it. We will get ready for it. God is engaged to bless. Now let us be prepared to receive the boon. Act not on the mere strength of what you have, but in expectation of that which you have asked. I'm convinced this is the word of the Lord for our church in this moment. We've been praying for revival. We've been pay, praying for God to save more, save more, build up more, send out more. And if we expect to receive God's outpouring, we must prepare for it. We have to be ready to receive what God is going to give. And so that means every one of us who call Lighthouse home, all of us men, all of you women, all of our young people, serving and preparing and getting the trenches dug so that we can receive the blessing. The blessing that God wants to pour out. Because that's what God does. It's what he loves to do. So, so what does that mean? It, I mean, it's, it's simple things. It's showing up faithfully for worship. It's serving joyfully where God has called you. It's confessing your sins regularly so you don't walk around with a guilty conscience. It's praying fervently. It's giving generously. It's loving each other deeply. It's forgiving quickly. It's embracing God's grace happily. It's, it's all those things. It's Nehemiah and the people of God, they were preparing for blessing and growth because, because they expected it. Now, what did they do to prepare specifically? And let me go rather quickly here. They helped people, they helped their people currently 
who were a part of the city, part of the area, find their place to serve. That's verse one. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. So the city is secured, the temple is about to reopen for worship, right? It's, it's been built, but it's been dormant. It hasn't been, worship hasn't been happening. So for the city to flourish or, and the, the church to thrive, everyone had to chip in and serve. Everyone could contribute something. And so here we have three groups of people listed, gatekeepers, the ones who would guard the gates. They were the security team there in Jerusalem. The singers, that's obviously the worship leaders, the worship team. The Levites, that's those who serve in the church. That's the church staff and the volunteers who lead the various ministries of our church and so on. So 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, to each one of you is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one of you. So if you're a Christian here this morning, God has gifted you a gift. You have a gift, and it's to be used for the common good, for the good of the body of Christ here at Lighthouse Church. So Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who gives in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Everyone has a gift. Everyone is needed. And what you have, Christian, God has given to you. The Spirit has delivered it to you. And he's done it for the benefit of others. Well, thirdly, they appointed leaders. That's verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So when it, when it comes to key leadership positions, and that's what we're talking about here, mayor of Jerusalem, there's, a sen there's two essential criterion for, for a, a place of key leadership in a church or a business or whatever. Competency and character. Competency and character. Jerusalem needed a mayor, so Nehemiah appointed two men to co-lead the city. Hanani was his brother. So Nehemiah would have been very familiar with Hanani, knew his character, knew his gifts. And so he appoints his brother Hanani. And then he appoints this other guy, Hananiah. And so Nehemiah knew Hananiah well enough to know that he was a solid guy who was God-fearing and more faithful than many, it says. So he knew his character. He was acquainted enough to know that, you know what, he's a solid guy. Listen, when it comes to key leadership positions, competence and character are the two essential components. Character without competence, and the ministry won't grow or flourish or do very well. And so 
You'll have to take the person who has the character but not the competence and find the right place for them. Competence without character and the ministry suffers trauma, controversy, confusion, and that person oftentimes leaves a mess behind as they head out the door. Character is developed slowly over time and it's manifest slowly over time. Competence is developed over time, but it's manifest immediately. You know when somebody is comp competent to do something, um, you, you know pretty much immediately if someone is good at administrating or preaching or singing or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, you're good at that. You're competent at that. You don't know if someone is faithful and honest and loyal and courageous until time has gone by. So you have scriptures like 1 Timothy 5.22. Don't lay your hands on anyone too soon. Laying hands, meaning you're essentially ordaining, you're, you're appointing someone to a key leadership position, a pastor, that kind of thing. Don't do that too quick. You've got you've to see the character, and you can only do that over time. If you do it too soon, it could come back to bite you. So, hire from within, if you can. People who have been found faithful, people who are tried and true, if you can. That's what you need to do. We're, we're in the midst of a, of a search for a head of school for Lighthouse Christian School. We, um, we installed a temporary head of school for, for this year, and she's been doing a great job, Angie Olson, and, but it's not her favorite thing, <laughs> being the head of school. Her, her gifts are unique, um, and, and she's looking forward to kind of moving back into those areas of her primary gifting. So we're in a search, and we started by asking, is there someone we know, someone locally, someone that we're familiar with and acquainted with, and so on, that might be fit for the job? And so we looked, we searched, and no, there wasn't. We concluded. So we began working uh, with this group that has their fingers on the pulse of Christian education and of all the resource pools, the human resource pools. And so we've been interviewing, just this last week, we began interviewing potential heads of school. And in my mind, I'm, you know, the whole time I'm like, man, this is so Nehemiah right here. Okay, we're gonna be appointing somebody into a key leadership position. And so how can we, how can we you know, do our best to make sure that they are competent and they have character? And so I think, I think we're going we're gonna to be there. I think we're going to get there. As a matter of fact, I think there's three people right now that, that probably all fit that. So we're excited. But listen, you can't rush into it because you can have somebody so competent, so full of gifting for the job, and they don't have the character. And man, that thing will blow up on you so hard. So they appointed leaders. They set policy 
Verse three, I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut the doors and bar the doors. So, so now that they've got gates, they need policy. What do we do with the gates? We haven't had gates before. I know we're supposed to open and shut them, but when? So they need, you know, they need to establish a policy about that. What do we do with these things? So Nehemiah sets the policy wisely. Don't open the gates until the sun is hot. In other words, till, God, till everybody's awake. Don't, don't have it open where an enemy could come in while the city's sleeping and, and wreak havoc, right? That's, that's wise. And then don't, don't lock it up until the guards, until the guards, are, or while the guards are still there, rather. So never leave an open gate unguarded, is what Nehemiah was saying. That's our policy. Every business, every city, every church, every home, for that matter, has to have a policy, written or not, to govern procedures and how we operate in a, in a, in a proper way that's gonna uh, ensure everybody's safety. The, the policy at the Fatness household is... I lock the doors at night. I lock the door. That's my job. And now, Pam, may, she can lock the doors. That's fine. But even if she does, I'm going to go around and I'm going to check every door. I do that every single night. Every single night, I check every door and make sure that they're locked. That's policy. That's my job. And I want to do it well. And every business, every church needs good policy that will, in, that will ensure the safety of the people and the good uh, flow of the ministry. Lastly, yeah, we got to be done here. Lastly, the leaders set the example in giving. I love this. Verse 70, now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work the governors gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minas of silver, and some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver, and <clears throat> what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, 67 priest garments, and so on. So I love this. Nehemiah as near as I can tell, started the giving with about $200,000. So I've, I've told you and we've discovered is that Nehemiah was a wealthy guy. And so remember, he's feeding 150 people every night on his own dime. He's not, he's not taking his government salary and using it for that. And so, or his government uh, stipend for that. So, so Nehemiah, the governor, he gives 200 grand. The other leaders give substantially. They start to get, the leaders start the giving. And the way it works out, the rest of the people, in comparison to the leaders, they give about, um, the rest of the people, about a third of the total, which uh, comes out to a number of millions of dollars. Listen, the area of giving, that's, a, that's an area, perhaps like no other, that will show your character and show your, your trust in God. And so 
are you a person who goes, okay, um, the tithe is the Lord's, the first fruits belongs to God. And so that's my commitment. That, that's that's the, 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 sheer, the sure sign, the, the manifestation of the reality of your belief that God is first in your life. It manifests uh, by, well, you're here this morning, first day of the week, you're giving God the first fruit of the week. That's a manifestation. You give God the first fruit of your increase, a tenth of what God, if he increases you, um, you know, $2,000 this month, you give God $200. If he increases you $100,000, you give him $10,000 by bringing it into the storehouse, the, your church. And leaders, character is developed by those who give consistently and faithfully. And Pam and I have discovered that right from the get-go. We, we understood this principle and have tithed to our churches from the moment we got saved in 1984 till now. God gets the church, God, through the church, gets 10% of our increase, and then we give on top of that to other things. And that's just the way it is. And it served us very, very well. Do you want to show your character and your faith? Then begin to be faithful in the, the simple things and the obvious things. Our church staff is going on our annual getaway uh, here after service. We're gonna head up to the mountains for a couple of days and uh, we covet your prayers for that. And um, this chapter is so timely because really um, Pastor Ron is gonna be retiring from our staff next month. He's not retiring from serving in church and all that, but uh, and so we're, we're being guided by the word of God and by Nehemiah especially, and we're, we're digging ditches. We're wanting to get our processes and make sure that our staff is functioning well and empowered to do what they're called to do. We have a relatively small staff, um, and so, we're gonna be looking hard at all of that and trying to be wise and making sure that our staff is in a great position to serve our church well and to be ready to handle those who come, the growth. And so we're believing God for blessing and for growth as the world continues to go crazy around us, I believe this is a moment for the church to shine. Like this is a moment. And I believe that there's gonna be multitudes of people getting sick of it out there. God, man, it's gotta be more than this. It can't be just this crazy stuff that's going on and everybody divided and, and, and listen, church, let's be praying for God to bring in more, not just to our church, but to the big C church, that many, many more will come out of the craziness and the, 
You know, the abandoning, the elementary laws of God, like what is a man, what is a woman? I mean, these basic things. That's gonna be very harmful to people. You realize that, right? That everybody that's buying into this, going down this road, it's gonna be harmful to them. We don't wanna see people harmed. We wanna see them blessed. We wanna invite them in to the blessing of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for our church and and uh, Lord, that you are good and you are the God who blesses and you bring increase and you save the lost. And Lord, we're in a time now where um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new Tower of Babel situation where we see the, the world uniting in rebellion against you. And the ideologies and the, the thinking and the ideas out there are so anti-God. And this idea of a utopian existence apart from you is is spreading. And Lord, I think of Psalm 2 where it says that in the last days before Jesus returned that the kings and the powerful people of the world will take counsel together asking how can we break the chains of the Lord and his anointed one? How can we get free once and for all from this Christian thing, this Christian God? And Lord, your word says that you laugh, you laugh at the absurdity We're glad, Lord. We're glad to be a part of the redeemed on the winning team. So help us to be joyful, Lord, uh, as we navigate through this year. Help us to be faithful, Lord, and to dig ditches together, preparing for the blessing of God. And... Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do. We look forward. Lord, we enjoy what you're doing right now in our lives and in our midst. So bless our city, Lord. Bless our valley. Bring more and more people out of darkness, out of the darkness of sin and addiction, debauchery, out of the darkness of religion, Lord, false religion that deceives people and gives them a sense of self-righteousness and oh Lord that they would be convicted of the futility of that and abandon their self-righteousness and embrace Jesus and his righteousness so Lord if we have sins if we've been carrying around a guilty conscience over something we did in our past uh, and maybe not that far back or whatever it is, as we come to the table, Lord, um, would you help us to vocalize that to you and would you cleanse us and refresh us so that we can go out the doors today with a clear conscience and have a joyful, spirit-filled week with you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
you are now invited to make your way to the communion table.